0: Hello, friends, and welcome to RobCast102. And uh, I have been meeting so many of you recently, to all of you who came out to Portland for the How to Be Here experience, uh, to the Butter Lady from Seattle, to Dr. Danny, uh, to all of you who came out to Powell's for the signing. uh, Much love. It's just so great meeting you, hearing your stories. Um, uh, Tons of you came to L.A. for the Liz event, Uh, Liz Gilbert and I did it at an all-day event, and good lord, you know when it begins with a Drake song that we're going places. (laughs) And then, uh, to all of you who came out to my recent Largo show, I did this show, I've never uh, done a show like it. I did a show based around 82 pictures that I've taken on my iPhone, and oh my word, I'm still laughing. Um, So, And then uh, a number of you came to the Berkeley Book Festival. And I got to hear all sorts of uh, interesting things. To that lovely woman, Nisa, who said that everything is spiritual inspired her to rethink her work with the five elements from Chinese tradition. These these kinds of things, people, the things that you all are doing, it's just fascinating to me. And uh, now I'll be in Tulsa in a couple of weeks. And then, Brooklyn, and then coming to Australia, I'm teaming up with the fine folks in July from Wake Up Project to do How To Be Here events in Sydney, Melbourne, and Brisbane. Um, Somewhere before that, uh, my older son is graduating from high school. I mean, all kinds of stuff going on. And then in August, uh, I'll be bringing How To Be Here to Paris, London, Belfast, And Dublin, and then we'll go to Iceland. After that, so uh, would love to see you. All the info on all those events is at robbell.com. And uh, just sending tons of love to all of you, my new friends, who I'm meeting in all of these uh, cities. And then, uh, as you can probably figure out, I love to make sermons. I love to do books. I love to do shows. I love to do tours. I also love to talk about talking and communicating. And uh, whether it's like giving a talk, message, sermon, making curriculum, writing lyrics, a blog. uh, And so sometimes I do events just about the art of communication. And I'm doing one this fall called Finding Your Groove as a Communicator. And uh, it's basically like a two-day workshop. In some senses, I kind of tell you everything I know. Um, but this is all new content. So if you've come to one of my communicators two days before, um, I'm doing a new one with uh, pretty much all new content. We may uh, reach back on a couple of different topics. Otherwise, I've got a whole new thing, a whole new two days, um, and that's all coming up. Maybe you're like a business owner and you give talks to your employees. Maybe you're a mom and you blog, and uh, maybe you just have the questions of how do you take something inside of you and give it expression, uh, how do you even know where to begin? So sometimes people have very deep conceptual questions about how you communicate. Other times it's stuff like, how do you memorize a 10-minute talk or something like that? Anyway, um, you'll see the Finding Your Groove on uh, at robbell.com, and I'm doing one. I'm taking over the improv here in West Hollywood, um, which is this legendary comedy club, and just doing a two-day workshop for communicators. So if you're a playwright, blogger, writer, uh, lyric composer, sermonizer, whatever it is that you do, teacher, um, would love to have you there. So those are all sorts of things that are coming up. And then, uh, oh, yeah, the Everything is Spiritual film has been out for a few weeks now. It's free on YouTube, Everything is Spiritual 2016, and the feedback uh, has just been great. Uh, so anyway, if you want to see that film, it's an hour and 55 minutes, and we put it for free on YouTube, <laughs> which continues to make me laugh. Um but this episode, episode 102, I think it's time for a sermon, an old-school sermon. So uh, this sermon is called An Eye Full of Light, and it's based on a, something that Jesus said that has so profoundly changed the way that I see the world, um, and at the end, I want to give you two very practical ways to think about this idea. But it's a classic example of one of those things that Jesus said that, that people get all muddled up in, because if you don't know what he's referring to, it just sounds like nonsense. But if you know what he's referring to, suddenly it gets brilliant. So uh, here we go. A Rob a Robcast sermon called An Eye Full of Light, based on something Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. In uh, the book of Matthew, he said... The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. And then the light within is darkness. And how great is that darkness? What? What? Healthy eyes? Uh... Is there something about your eye that affects your whole body, your whole being, uh, in essence, your whole life? What is he talking about? Now, a bit of background. Jesus isn't making up anything new here. He's actually drawing on a tradition that his audience would have been familiar with, because his audience would have been familiar with Torah, which is the first five books of the Hebrew scripture. And there was a passage in the Torah that everybody knew that talked about your eye, and your eye being either full of light or full of darkness was actually a common expression and an understanding that there were two ways to view the world. I know, interesting, isn't it? Now, the passage that people would have gotten this idea from was Deuteronomy chapter 15, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And as a a good Jewish person in the first century, you would have been familiar with this passage because you would have heard it talked about and discussed and debated and taught probably your whole life when you went to the synagogue. Now, the passage that Jesus is referring to about your eye comes from Deuteronomy 15, and Deuteronomy 15 begins like this. At the end of every seven years, you must cancel debts. (laughs) So, in Torah was a command that every seven years, you set people free from their debt. Whatever money they owe you, you simply waive the debt and you say, you no longer owe me anything. Every seven years, everybody gets a fresh start. Let I me mean, think about the implications of this. Uh, it's amazing, isn't it? Um, by the way, there's very little evidence that it was ever actually practiced, which is also, of course, very interesting. Now, so the Deuteronomy 15 begins, every seven years, you should cancel debts, set everybody free, let everybody start fresh. By the way, how great would that be? Like anybody here have credit card debt? Anybody here have uh, school debt? Anybody here have debt from repairs that you didn't see coming just to keep your car running or your house from falling over? Uh, imagine if every seven years, um, you got a fresh start. Now, Deuteronomy fifteen then goes on talking about what this every seven year, would look like when you cancel debt. And in verse 9, it says this, and by the way, I'm going to read it in the King James because, and I can't believe I'm saying this, but the King James actually sticks to the original Hebrew better in a weird sort of way. Um, And basically, the King James version of the Bible is like what happened if Shakespeare would have written the Bible at some level, or translated it. Now, uh, verse 9 says this, beware that there not be a thought in thy wicked heart saying the seven year the seventh year the year of release is at hand and thine eye be evil against thy poor brother and thou givest him not and he cry unto the lord against thee and it be a sin unto thee (laughs) by the way how much fun is that to read so the reason why i read in the king james is because it says basically beware that there's not a thought in your heart that the seventh year is coming and anybody who owes your money, you're gonna have to waive the debt. And so if you have that in your head and a poor brother or sister comes to you and asks you for help, be careful that you don't have an evil eye against them and you don't give him anything because there's not that much time for them to pay you back, and then it would just be money that you lost. And the reason why is don't do that because he, uh, if you give him nothing, he could cry unto the Lord, and it would be a, a sin on your behalf. Now, why is this interesting? First off, the passage revolves around the poor. It revolves around a brother or sister who's in trouble and needs help with the basics of life, food, shelter, clothing. And so the passage is about making sure that no one gets stuck in that downward vortex of poverty, that nobody gets essentially trapped getting farther and farther and farther in the hole. It's about making sure that no one gets in a hole they can't climb out of. It's like the original social safety net. And so everybody, seven years, gets a fresh start, all debts are removed. And so if someone owes you and you release them from that debt, if someone asks you for help, you know the seventh year is coming. And it says, if you deny your neighbor help because you don't want to have to forgive that debt, because there might not be enough time to pay for it, they may cry unto the Lord. Now, why is that significant? Because that word cry is one of the central words of the scriptures. Because when do we hear that word? It's, it comes really early, but also these people's ancestors were slaves in Egypt. And what did they want? They wanted to be liberated because they were in agony because they were being oppressed by the Pharaoh. And so what did they do? They cried out. So whenever you see that word cry, it's a callback to. Slavery. It's a callback to bondage. You cry out, and the central story of the scriptures is God is the God who hears the cry of the oppressed, hears the cry of anyone who's enslaved. And so, when it says, if a brother, a sister, a neighbor comes to you and they're in help and they need something and you deny them because you're like, I don't want them to owe me, and then I have to waive that debt and lose that money, they may cry out against you. You realize what it's saying is it saying, When you become stingy and selfish and you refuse to help someone in need, you become a new kind of pharaoh. Whatever you do, don't become an oppressor who's greedy and stingy and prevents others from having their needs met. Don't become the kind of person that other people have to cry out against. (laughs) So the passage is about the poor, or is it about those around you who are struggling and who you know who come to you and say, hey, I need some help here. Now, obviously, these matters are really complicated in our world, okay? They were complicated in our world, and they were complicated then. So uh, just stay with me here and stay with me on this passage and how it relates to what Jesus says, because eventually we'll get to 2016. So hang with me. So this passage in Deuteronomy was a passage people would have known, and essentially it was a passage about having an evil eye or a good eye, having a generous eye or having a stingy, greedy eye. And this idea developed that there are these two kinds of eyes. You see it again referenced in the book of Proverbs chapter 22, and I'll read it again in the King James because it's so great. He that hath a bountiful eye, like a generous or abundant eye, he that hath a bountiful eye shall be blessed, for he giveth of his bread to the poor. Once again, one of the central themes of the Bible, I assume you already know this, one of the central themes of the Bible is the poor, is caring for the poor, and not letting a massive gap develop between the poor and the rich and elite, making sure that everybody has their needs met. And if you have more than enough, you sharing what you have with those who need it, one of the central themes that never stops coming up in the scriptures. It's about caring for those in your midst who have very real needs. So this idea of there are two kinds of eyes. There is a generous eye and there is a stingy, greedy eye. It's, so it's generous, it's about sight, it's about two kinds of eyes, but it's about two ways of seeing the world. Because there is the presence of generosity But the presence of generosity means the absence of greed, stinginess, envy, jealousy. So let's take this at, 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 let's just begin at a relational level and work our way back to money. Have you ever had something good happen to someone and you aren't happy for them? Have you ever been bitter or jealous because of the goodness, abundance, talent, favor, money, resources, house, car, vacation that came to somebody else and you couldn't celebrate the good that had come their way? As if their favor is a threat to your well-being? Have you ever had that happen? Does the good that happens to them mean that you're missing out? Is there a limited amount of goodness in the world so that if good came their way, it must have been taken from your share? Do you see how this whole thing Jesus is saying about the eye, it goes way deeper than just generous or stingy? It goes way deeper than just money. It goes to how you understand the fundamental nature of the world we're living in. Have you ever had something good come your way and somebody near you said, must be nice. You ever had that, oh! And it just somehow, it took the air out of your joy when someone was like, I must be nice. Or have you ever had somebody say, man, I'd love to get all the breaks that you do. When somebody says this to you, this person isn't reconciled to their life. And so any good that comes your way, they see as a statement about their perceived lack of good. They can't celebrate your life because they don't celebrate theirs. Now, let's go farther. What kind of world is this? Is goodness and joy and blessing limited? Is there only so much joy to go around? Now, obviously, certain resources are limited, like natural resources, commodities, land. Okay, we're not talking about like actual physical resources. Jesus here is talking about something much deeper. He is talking about your deeper experiences of meaning, joy, and satisfaction in the world. Or as, as uh, he probably would have used the word shalom, peace, wholeness, blessing, abundance. See, there is a scarcity understanding of the world that the world is like a pie and there are only so many pieces so if you receive a good slice then it must something must have been taken from my slice if you have a dark eye not an eye full of light but an eye full of darkness if you see the world through the lens of scarcity then inevitably it's going to lead you to hoarding and stockpiling and you're going to have to protect what you're hoarding and stockpiling, and eventually you'll have way more than you need while others won't have enough. Remember, Jesus' ancestors had been slaves in Egypt where the Pharaoh was storing up grain and resources. And what did all that storing up lead to? It led to slavery and oppression. And to protect all those resources, you need to protect it with what? Exactly, military. Guns, tanks, whatever the weapon is of whatever time this is happening in. See, these are age-old human questions. And so Jesus' ancestors had this story deep in their bones of a time when their people were in slavery and oppression, and a few had everything, and the masses had next to nothing. So you can see, by the way, why a command, like in the book of Leviticus, there's this one command to leave a corner of your field for the widow, the orphan, and the immigrant. And what it said was, whenever you're harvesting your field, leave a corner that you don't harvest so that the poor, the widow, the orphan, the immigrant, those who don't have food could come and harvest that corner of your field. Always, always, always leave a bit for those who need it. Why? so that you won't become another kind of Pharaoh who hoards and stockpiles in your greed and stinginess at the expense of others. See, it's how you view the world. And what's undergirding this passage in Torah, which leads to the passage Jesus is talking about, is a trust that the world can provide you everything you need, that it's a generative reality that we're living in. Now, let's take it farther. Jesus told a story about an owner of a vineyard who hired people all throughout the day. And by the way, uh, because of the great poverty during Jesus' day, a lot of his uh, fellow Jews were losing their family lands, which was the most shameful, humiliation th- humiliating thing imaginable. And Roman, uh, think of them as like corporate uh, real estate developers in some way, were, bo- were taking the massive Roman taxes, which were making Jesus' um, neighbors poor, they were taking all this tax money and using it to buy up these lands. And so a lot of people were losing their family lands, like maybe they had a vineyard, and that vineyard had been in their family for generations, and then they were in debt, and somebody came along, came along and exploited that debt and bought up a bunch of these family lands And so there were these corporate landowners, a lot of times Romans, who were then hiring people. Sometimes people had had a family, like a vineyard they'd been working for generations. They lost it. Can you imagine the shame and humiliation? And then they were being hired as day laborers on land they once owned. So absolutely degrading, humiliating circumstances. So Jesus tells a story about an owner of a vineyard who had hired people throughout the day. And... He hires these people at different times, but at the end of the day, he pays them all the same. And the ones who had worked the most started to complain, and the landowner says, are you envious because I'm generous? <sighs> and by the way, if you struggle with je- jealousy or envy, this to me is one of the greatest mantras. This has helped me so much when I see somebody with something and something within me that, that little root of bitterness rises up, or that jealousy, or that envy, Uh, imagine the divine, imagine the universe saying, are you envious? Because I'm generous. So helpful. But you realize what Jesus is saying underneath this. You can't split the infinite. See, a scarcity view sees the world like a pie, and there's only so many slices, and if they get that slice, well, then obviously it's taken from me. But what jesus here is saying you can't divide the divine you can't split the infinite everybody gets paid the same because this is a reality that can't be divided you can't break up a seamless reality like in the great Shema, the great Hebrew prayer, hear O Israel, Lord your God, the Lord is one. And by the way, when you hear the word God, if, you don't, if the word God triggers all sorts of stuff, then don't use it, that's fine. You could use the word ultimate reality, you could use the word universe, whatever being, source, spirit, however you wanna talk about God, whatever language you want to use for it. When you're talking about foundational reality, this prayer, this ancient prayer, essentially began with the affirmation that source, ultimate reality, is ultimately a seamless reality, and you can't divide something that's one. It's interesting, with uh, Moses, the divine keeps insisting that the divine has no boundaries or shape or edges, because if something has no boundary or edges, then it can't be divided into smaller components. So when you think about your life, when you think about joy, meaning, significance, Let's even use the word happiness. Are those only present in the world in limited amounts? Or are you dealing with the infinite? And if we're talking about your joy, when you experience joy, you are experiencing that which has no boundaries or edges. It can't be divided into smaller slices or component parts. Come on, are you with me, friends? You can't split the infinite, you can't divide the divine. This is the understanding that Jesus has of reality. So this is why he talks about having a dark eye or a light eye. Uh A bad eye or a good eye, a generous eye or a stingy, greedy eye, is how you understand the world that we're living in will deeply affect all areas of your life, which is why they use the eye, the evil eye or the good eye, is how you see and perceive will affect every ounce of your being. Now... I wanna talk about two very practical ways to think about this. I wanna talk about anxiety, and then I'm gonna talk about flow. Uh, Because the moment you start talking about generosity, you start talking about are they getting more, are they getting more of their share, is it taking away from mine? Oftentimes these issues bring up all sorts of anxiety, and I wanna introduce you to this idea of flow when it comes to having an eye full of light. So first, flow, then anxiety. What I think is really interesting is this passage where Jesus talks about your eye being a lamp of the body is in between two passages about money. So the passage before this is the passage that says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Then there's the line about having a good eye and your whole body being full of light. Then the passage after is the passage where he says, no one can serve two masters. So this whole section on the Sermon on the Mount Uh, And by the way, the Sermon on the Mount to me is the best teaching on how to live with less anxiety. If you want to live with less anxiety and less worry, um, I have uh, at different times in my life memorized Matthew 5, 6, and 7 because it's such an unbelievably helpful guide in how to live in the world with less worry and anxiety. Uh, But this passage is between two passages on money. And who of us doesn't know that stress? Money, money problems. Um, Anybody here have that thing that happens where money is tight? And so it begins to dominate your thinking. It's like everything that comes your way during the day comes back to money. Uh, It's like it can take over. Do you ever feel like your relationship to money has a direct link to your nervous system? You realize you're on edge And then you realize, oh, it's because I'm worried about that. It's because I'm anxious about that. Here's what's helped me from this teaching of Jesus. Think about things in terms of flow. You've had money coming in for a while now, sometimes not very much, sometimes maybe more. You've had money coming in for a number of years now, and you've also had money going out for quite some time now. That's how life is, money coming in, money going out. Sometimes only a little coming in, get a ton going out, sometimes more coming in and less going out. Although, have you noticed that the more that comes in, you seem to find a way to let more go out? Uh, this flow of money in and money out has been coming for quite some time now. And the terror is that not enough is going to come in, while at the same time, too much is going to go out. That's the terror, right? The terror is all of a sudden, all of this is going to leave and not enough is going to come. The good eye, having an eye full of light is the invitation to see everything within a larger flow. Uh, You've been scraping by before. You've had challenges before. You've, uh, lost sleep about money issues before, and you'll probably have challenges in the future. But you're here now. Whatever those previous stresses were, you survived them. You made it. So here's the thing lurking behind all of these texts that we've looked at. It's good to tighten up what's going out. It's smart, smart to have a budget, envelopes, going to seminars, figuring out columns, discovering how much, determining how much you can spend on what, very good, smart, lots of people do this, uh, saving, investing, um, cutting back, et cetera, et cetera. Very, very good, very, very smart. But the practice of frugality and simplicity can sometimes become a spirit of scarcity are you with me, in which you tighten up your checkbook and wallet, which can be good, but sometimes what can happen is your heart gets tightened up as well. Less is going out, meaning you're much more conscious and conscientious about how you're spending money, but less is going out can sometimes mean less is coming in. And in some mysterious way, it goes back to how you see the world. And so our practice of simplicity, our practice of frugality, our practice of being careful with money is all really, really, really good and necessary. But sometimes what can happen is it drifts into the heart and we shut off the flow. We are so concerned about our own well-being that we... It's like we put a crimp in the hose and we cut ourselves off from the generous flow. Both the generous flow from us to others, and in the process, we cut off the flow to ourselves. Anybody know what I'm talking about? So part of the art of it is to live simply, is to live within your means, to be careful, but always to keep your eye full of light. I am being careful here, but I am going to have uh, an eye full of light. And this goes way beyond money. This is time, energy, compassion, solidarity. The real art is to be careful and prudent, smart, and due diligence. Do all those words that your CPA uncle uses. You know what I'm talking about, right? But at the same time, remember that there's probably always somebody around you with needs, and there's probably something you have that somebody else needs. I love that great line, let the one who has two coats give to the one who has none. And sometimes what can happen is we become so overwhelmed with what we don't have that we lose sight of the extra that we do have. And so we don't share it in the process. We miss out on the joy of helping out somebody who has a need that we can meet. We essentially cut off the flow one direction and we end up cutting the flow off in another direction. And what Jesus is doing here is he's saying, keep that eye full of light, which means keep reminding yourself that you live in a generous, generative reality, that you cannot divide the infinite. You cannot break up that which has no boundaries or edges. Joy, good, meaning, satisfaction, happiness, can't. Be divided, come on. And then from flow, let's talk about anxiety. Anybody here, you start hearing someone talk about generosity and how you should be generous and instantly you're like, oh, wait. Uh, There's like this anxiety that kicks in the moment you talk about the poor, you talk about money, you talk about, here's the thing and here's what's helped me and especially when it comes to the good that happens to people around you. Have you ever been exhausted? you've been working so hard, and then somebody that you know goes on a 10-day vacation to somewhere amazing, and they come back, and they show you these pictures, and they're so full of life, and you're not like, wow, that's great. All you're thinking is, I wish I could have gone on something like that. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Or you're driving just a total POS, and your friend pulls up in your dream car. And you're not like, oh, yeah, sure. I'd love a ride in it. You're what? You're going to let me drive it? Yeah, I'd love to. And inside you're just burning because that's the car that you want. So try this. Try intentionally celebrating the good that comes to others and do it intentionally. And here's why. See if it affects every area of your life. Here's something I started trying and practicing and I'm. It it is so transformative. I'm telling you, you're going to try this and then later you're going to say to me, oh my word, that's so amazing. Here's what I try and practice. When something good happens to somebody, say to them, I am so happy for you. When you hear somebody giving one of those reports where they're like, and then this happened, and then I got this, and then this came my way, pause all the thousands of things in your brain, think carefully about what they're saying, and then say something to them along the lines of, I'm so happy for you. Try this. Because here's the thing. You can see the blessing, money, abundance, house, car, vacation, good, shalom, peace, happiness. You can see whatever comes to somebody near you. You can see it as a threat you can see they're getting more than their share, which means they're getting some of my share. You can see it like that. You can see the world like a fixed pie with boundaries and edges. You can see it as a threat. Or you can choose to see it as a sign. Because if that happened to them, what might come your way? So you can see the goodness when you're in a, when you have a spirit of scarcity, then the good that comes to somebody else is a threat. But when you move to an eye full of light, the, the good can become a sign. It can become a glimpse. If that happened to them, what might come my way? If the kind of world I'm living in is the kind of world where that can happen to them, what might happen to me? Especially if it's totally unfair or ridiculous, or they don't, you don't think they deserve it, or they're a total idiot. Right? Here's the thing. When something happens to somebody near you and you think that they are such a bonehead, what a knucklehead. How did that happen to them? That is completely ridiculous. You can see it as a threat or you can choose to celebrate it and think that's the kind of world I'm living in where that kind of thing happens to somebody like that. Jesus had this great line, God causes the rain to fall on the righteous and the unrighteous. Jesus essentially says, this is the kind of world we're living in. Good stuff happens to all kinds of people. Ridiculous, undeserved goodness happens all the time in this world to people who totally don't deserve it. And so there's a chance that all sorts of ridiculous, undeserved goodness could happen to you as well. And by the way, people who live like this generally are the kinds of people who tend to have more joy. It's not rocket science here. Try this. Try when you see something good happening to somebody, say, I'm so happy for you. At first, it may be gritted teeth. (laughs) At first, you may just be like, oh, that's great. When before, you wouldn't have said anything. It may take a while, baby steps. See if this doesn't lessen your anxiety because... Your psyche and the anxiety that plagues it are often rooted in an eye filled with dark. It's a scarcity world. I'm going to get screwed. I'm going to get hosed. Someone else is going to get a bigger slice. It's a race. Throw some elbows. Try and move to having an eye full of light and try to intentionally celebrate The ridiculous goodness that you see happening all around you, even to people that you think are morons. Try it and see if it doesn't lessen your anxiety. And see if it doesn't affect every area of your life. Jesus essentially says, Jesus says that the kind of eye that you have shapes everything Every dimension of your existence, how you choose to see, and it's important to remember that you have choice here. You can choose to see. So when someone says, "Well, well, maybe the world just is that way, not that way," uh, maybe it's not. Maybe we choose. Maybe we decide. You realize that's what Jesus is saying, as he's not saying the world is. Well, you know, it could be this way, it could be that way. Let's go. He's saying. When you choose to see this world this way, the world becomes this way. Yeah, if your eye is full of light, then your whole body is healthy. Your whole body becomes full of light, your whole life. I wonder how many people have physical symptoms from their spiritual eyesight. Because we have a pain body. We have cells, molecules, atoms. I wonder to what degree jealousy, greed, stinginess, fear, a spirit of scarcity resides not just in our heart, but in our very bones. And see if you come to see things as a flow. If you see, come to see things in terms of good light, see if it doesn't lessen your anxiety. Yes, my friends. And that is a sermon called An Eye Full of Light. May you, my brothers and sisters, may you see the whole thing as a flow. May you take Jesus seriously that no one can serve two masters, that there are these two ways of seeing the world. May you come to see that the infinite cannot be divided. And may you choose to see the goodness coming to others around you, not as a threat, but as a sign, as a hint, as a glimpse of just the ridiculous, undeserved goodness that can come to any one of us. And may grace and peace be yours.